Genre. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing characters from Record of Ragnarok. Joining us for the discussion is returning guest Norman Mitchell. Welcome, Norman. Hello. Thank you for having me. And as someone who knows a bit more about anime than I do, producer Andrew's going to be jumping in a bit more in this discussion, right, Andrew? Yes, but Norman's the true expert. Oh, yeah. When, <laughs> when we were requested to do a uh, an anime from a patron, I, I set up the I set out the, the Norman signal into the sky and said, Norman, <laughs> we, we desperately need you on the protagonist podcast. <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about anime pretty much whenever. Uh, <laughs> so. As far as I'm concerned, you're the world's leading expert on anime. Oh, well, I uh, <laughs> I, I will humbly accept that, although I, I think it's a little misguided. <laughs> All right, maybe the protagonist podcast leading expert on anime. <laughs> I'll I'll take that. <laughs> so, uh, Record of Ragnarok is an anime series based on the manga series Shumatsu no Valkyrie by Fuku- Fukui Takumi, and the anime was directed by Masao Okubo and was released on Netflix on June seventeenth, twenty twenty one. So, fairly recently, uh, at at yes. the point of this recording, uh, I don't know when everyone will be getting around to listening to this episode, but. <laughs> As we're recording this, this has only been on, on Netflix for um, a couple months. Uh, well, less less than two months. And the plot revolves around uh, around a plan by the gods to destroy all humans. And when I say the gods, I mean all the gods <laughs> from all mm-hmm. the pantheons. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pan pantheon. Yes. I, I, I mean, I don't know how many. I didn't sit there and count, but it's a lot of different gods from mythologies just hanging out together uh including one that looks like cthulhu if you're paying attention uh, yeah i saw saw cthulhu sometimes i was like hey it's a cthulhu apparently this is a meeting that they get around every 1000 years to talk about hey what are we gonna do with these humans and at this point they're like we're done with them we're tired of them they're 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 ruining things uh but the valkyries present a plan for the humans to be allowed a chance to win their survival at a tournament will be held with 13 humans from throughout history. And because they're gods, they could pluck humans from any point in history. Uh, and they will stand in battle against 13 gods and one-on-one battles in an arena. If the humans can win the majority of the battles, humanity survives. If they lose, then humanity will be destroyed. And so that's the premise uh, we're working with, which is simultaneously one of the craziest, most out there, uh, examples of a premise I can think of, but also I'm kind of into it. <laughs> well, and like for for being crazy and out there, like it's surprisingly simple. Yeah, like they, yeah. The, the establishing this premise was one of the fastest things that these episodes did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're, we're we're into it pretty quickly. Um. So how we came to it? Well, we had a a patron reach out and ask for us to cover Record of Ragnarok. So I I pulled it up on Netflix and and watched. Uh, at this point, I've watched the first four episodes. I believe season one has thirteen episodes. Is that correct? Yes. So when I heard the premise that there were going to be thirteen battles and I saw thirteen episodes, I thought I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and no, that's on me. No, oh, you presumed poor, poor naive fool. <laughs> I presumed incorrectly. <laughs> about you're gonna make me look something else and i need to pull in my pocket for a little bit hang on (laughs) i think i think norman's gonna pull up some 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 statistics i believe (laughs) um so i i thought 
13 battles that at least like when we had this requested uh from the patron uh andrew you quickly pulled it up and told me that premise and i pulled it up on netflix saw 13 episodes i'm like okay well one season we're gonna knock this whole thing out watch the first episode battle didn't end so i'm like okay well it will probably end of the second and then we'll get a, like a twofer uh <laughs> coming up or you know this battle end at the beginning of episode two and then we'll, we'll get a quick second battle in and we'll, we'll be on track to do all 13 battles in this first season or what i now know is a first season i thought it was gonna be the whole series uh episode two ends if we're not even close to the end of a battle <laughs> uh, episode three i'm like okay here we here we go nope <laughs> episode four the battle ends but it's also left like i clearly there's gonna be some some like cleanup that's going to be involved yeah, yeah, yeah. at the start of episode five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so uh, I've, we're going to be summarizing the first four episodes, which is only the first battle uh, of the series. But my expectations were shattered, I will just say, <laughs> as, as, <laughs> as far as what I thought I was going to be getting into uh, with the series. But um, Andrew, uh, had you heard of the series before we were asked to cover it? Uh, only a little bit. I think I saw like a Netflix trailer um, okay. come up on it because because it was... Um, like a Netflix premiere. Uh, mm-hmm. it, and so, you know, seeing the Netflix trailers come up, I've watched enough anime that those trailers come up periodically. Um, right. for me. And, and I've watched some of the, the, um, the anime that have premiered on Netflix for, for Western audiences. When they say like Netflix original, I don't think that means entirely original. I think that means like they did the English language production and, and, um, did the first release in a certain market. Mm-hmm. I, think, so I think, I think when it's Netflix, they also are, uh, like producers, I think they front some of the yeah. money for the production. So they yeah. are a production partner, at least. Yeah, but it's but it's not being produced by Netflix Studios or anything like that. Um, yeah, not and not like U.S. Netflix. Like this is uh, a Japanese production that's yeah. premiering on Netflix here. Yeah, so yeah. this, this I, I was done by a Japanese studio. Uh, uh, Gra- uh, Grafinica is the name. Of my the my sense from looking up some trivia is what Norman was saying, though, that like Netflix did have a, a financial relationship from the get go. They're not just licensing it yeah. to, to drop onto Netflix. No. Yeah. So. um so for those originals, they, you know, push a little harder for the the trailer. So I think I saw like part of a trailer. And I was like, I don't think this is one for me. And and that was kind of like my extent of exposure. And then I think I'd seen like a little bit of additional information for mm-hmm. it, which confirmed my initial assessment. Um, whereas like, OK, I'm probably not going to go for this um, on my own. Now, Norman, <laughs> I reached out to you uh, and said, hey, uh, we've been asked to do this this anime. And I gave you the title and I'm like, let me know if you're interested. And I think I, I sent that pretty late at night, our time, which you, you're on the East Coast. And, and so it was really late for you. So you, I, and then like in the morning, I got a message saying, I think it was I watched the first five episodes. <laughs> so yeah, you, you're I, immediately I, on it for us. <laughs> I I was like, oh, I haven't seen that. I've I remember hearing about the manga like a couple years ago. It's like been on my radar as a little while. It's just like this really over the top battle manga, but it never, it wasn't anything that I was ever like, ah, I need to get to that. I was just like, ah, that's a thing that exists that I hear some, some bubbling about in different circles of like being a shonen anime fan and just like, oh, I might get to that eventually. And like, you sent me the message and then uh, in the background while I was working the next day, I just like watched the first five episodes and I was just <laughs> like, I'll talk about this. Sure. I think I get, I get, I got some stuff to talk about, at least as far as like, <laughs> anime in general and like uh, production things and mm-hmm. like some tropes. Uh, but I have, a, I have a question for you, Joe. Yeah. So you were talking about how you, you were, you watched first episode and you said, okay, 13, 13 fights, 13 episodes. <laughs> 
Yes, Maya. <laughs> okay, so in in Dragon Ball Z, which is the I anime that everyone was... makes fun of no. for the length well, no, wait, of fights, and wait the a second, Norman. Of... Before you go any further, because I thought you were going to go to Dragon Ball Z, are you about to hit Joseph? And I don't know the exact number, but are you going to hit Joseph with with a statistic about the the longest number of episodes? for a single fight in Dragon Ball oh, Z? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Okay. All right. That, so It's what I was hoping for. <laughs> Joseph, you are not ready. <laughs> so, I, I'm gonna ha- should I have a number in my head? Well, I know yeah. listeners can grab so, a number so right now. Grab a number right now. Have a number in your head. Keep it Keep it real tight. All right. So the, the first, like, really big, like, multi-arc big bad in Dragon Ball Z is a character named Frieza. His fight is done in two stages. The group and then... When Goku is better, Goku fights Frieza. The first part of the fight before Goku is healed is 10 episodes. After Goku is healed and it's just Goku Goku versus Frieza, it's 20 more. (laughs) That's that's one-on-one, one one character fighting one character. For 20 episodes. (laughs) Yes. And I so and I just like pulled this up on a list of like longest <laughs> in Dragon Ball Z by number of episodes. The yeah. second longest fight is eleven. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, yeah. So I guess the four to complete this battle, and then one episode to kind of transition from this battle to the next. I'm guessing is what's happening in episode five. Uh, uh, which is, yeah. yeah there's like it. kind of a little bit of a transition. It cleans it, up. Yeah. It's most mostly a little bit of leftover stuff. Yeah. Okay. Oh God. wow. <laughs> my number was seven. That was that was the number I had in my head. <laughs> Seven, seven is still a lot. Like seven oh, is yeah. the number of episodes of like the climactic battle of the dark tournament. You Haka show. I think that's I, seven I was episodes. hoping you would bring up the dark tournament because the dark tournament was my introduction to tournament in anime and, yeah. and, and, and seven episodes. Now, Joseph, seven episodes. When I was watching the dark tournament, that was a weekly Saturday night on Toonami. And so it <laughs> took two months to watch this fight. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, um, I, because we're let, let's go ahead and tackle this a little now, uh, instead of in the discussion, because you you you've mentioned a couple times like uh, tournament anime as like a, a subgenre of anime. Um, what exactly does that traditionally entail? And is it always this kind of like hyper violent, which is you know the, the record of Ragnarok? It was it was uh, I think on Netflix TV I made for violence, mm-hmm. and it was yeah. Um, you know, fairly, violent. I'd say it's kind of like Lord of the Rings level violence, mostly like, you know, you get a, a beheading, but it's it's kind of like the, the quick shot. And then there's a body there without a head. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And there will be there will be red blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like pretty exaggerated. It's animated. So you can get away with like some gore that doesn't really come across as like too gory most of the time. So like you can get away yeah. with a little more. So is is tournament anime like all this kind of fight or is there other styles of tournament anime? Um, so like. There's like tournament arcs in shonen, yes. which tend to be like pretty violent. Uh, Can you stuff remind on me, shonen manga and shonen anime is which specifically? I know these uh, are not teenage boys. Yeah, the demographic shonen's not really a genre. Shonen's really a demographic label oh, okay. that's like stuff aimed at uh, boys age like twelve to twenty. Like okay. that's like kind of the demographic. And uh, this so is like falling into shonen, right? Yes. Yeah, this is definitely like shonen a little more on a little more on the mature side, but this is definitely still shonen. I okay. I don't think that this is uh seinen is the term for like stuff that's aimed at a more mature audience. Like Okay. Uh, m- mature as in like more interested in mature 
kinds of storytelling and not like super violent because mm-hmm. there's there's a wide range of acceptability on like what's okay for violence in manga aimed at like teenage boys in in japan like mm-hmm. andrew's read one piece there is occasionally some like pretty violent gruesome stuff in one piece yeah not often but occasionally there's a little bit yeah but there's there's other stuff that's like in the same category where it's like okay there's going to be more of that like grotesque yeah. violence um yeah. in in different series and so all those same series it's like it's still shown in but you're going to have a, a different range on how how graphic the violence is and how grotesque the violence is um yeah but they're going to be like pretty action oriented most of the time i mean some some of them are sports yeah. themed but you're going to have like pretty actiony um stuff most of the time and so this would be in you know like when i think of shonen is like okay that's basically like straightforward action yeah the action drives the plot instead of like the plot leading to action a lot of the time in mm-hmm. in shonen stuff like what happens between two people in like a fight turns into what drives the plot forward next rather than the plot arriving them at that fight in a more organic way a lot okay. of the times and and you spend a lot of time on the fights and it's relatively slow um is it, norman you had mentioned the dark tournament uh, yes. which like i said was was my introduction joseph that that dark tournament arc was in a series called Yu Yu Hakusho, Spirit Detective. Um, I don't know anything about it. Love the title. Um, it's so good. I love Yu Yu Hakusho so much. I would love to talk the, about it at some point on here. The So the first arc of that series is, like, despite the overall name, the first arc is the Spirit Detective arc. And the second arc, which is the longest arc in the series, is the Dark Tournament, which is twice as long as it's a, the rest of the series. I think the Dark the Tournament, the Dark it's 40 tournament arc... Yeah, it's like 40 episodes. It takes and, and there was 20 episodes before. Yeah. There's there's the Spirit Detective Arc, Maze Castle, which is like kind of still part of the Spirit Detective Arc. Yeah, I think it still gets included. Uh Dark Tournament, and then Chapter Black, and then the Demon World Tournament. Because there's two yeah. tournament arcs in New York. <laughs> um, but like 40 episodes of, of tournament where you've got like multiple stages of team versus mm-hmm. team tournament stuff. And so like that's where I like cut my teeth on on tournaments. And I'd say I think Norman mentioned it like it's not so much that tournament genre is the thing. It's just that there's tournament arcs because it's a way to structure your narrative and base it around action and, and fighting and conflict. Yeah. I there mean, is, this, the, I, I was just gonna say that like this tournament just very clearly gives you an entire, uh, you know, premise and a uh, framework on which you can build an entire series very quickly where you're like, okay, gods versus humans for the survival of humans, one-on-one tournaments, humans have to win seven like okay there you go there's the stakes and there's your your framework which i thought was gonna be a framework of episode to episode um no i I, I was a little misinformed (laughs) at that point uh but it gives you a framework for for a series right yeah uh and i i I understand uh, the appeal of of tournament as kind of that uh you know a, a large set piece for a series or in this case the entire set piece of the series yeah and i think it really kind of started with like sports manga as like really becoming a thing and then I don't know the first like shonen story it really showed up in, but it kind of became part of like the greater shonen like consciousness in the original Dragon Ball manga in the the first mm. part of the story when Goku is a kid. And then like from there, it just kind of like ballooned out and everything else. I'm trying to think of like a comparable thing in in Western media where it's like, uh, is like 
it's not like having a car chase in an action movie, but it's kind of in that I mean, kind of do, territory. We do. I mean, we do lots of sports uh, dramas, right? Where where like yeah. the, the big tournament at the end of the year or the playoffs, yeah. you know, that kind of but thing. But it's usually really just focused in on like one game. Right. I mean, we do have yeah, montage. The one of the of one of the classic, you know, Karate Kid yeah. montage sequences yeah, but, there at the end. But you'll You're montage it all instead of spend right instead of spend 16 hours on it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> or in, in the case of Frieza, 16 hours on just Frieza. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you for that uh, enlightening discussion about tournament manga and anime. Oh, what, real quick. Actually, I think it's probably worth talking about before you you still haven't summarized yet, but um, <laughs> having the those tournament like arcs and themes, it does mean that there's like some set parameters where and, and this is going to affect, I think, how you tell the story is like the announcer is a central character in a tournament storyline. Like, yes, having definitely. The, like the person with the microphone is one of the key figures. And then you've got like the crowd and you're going to cut to like certain sections of the crowd frequently. Um, and so you've got these these background things. And that's mm-hmm. like, yeah, and it's a those it's are the a way to kind of make tournament. Yeah, and it's a it's a way to kind of make the voice of the author like uh, diegetic to the story. Yeah, I, I could see that definitely. Uh, you know, they, you, you're, it's a natural way to insert a narrator, essentially, mm-hmm. and like remind yeah. the audience of the stakes and also really give a lot of clarity because, um, you know, when it's uh, you just big move after big move in a fight you know, the the uh the announcer is able to like give the the kind of manga like, like i still remember covering a manga on this podcast where it was like they they, they put like in big splash letters the name of every move that was happening <laughs> like behind it as part of mm-hmm. you know like the sound effect was naming the move and in this case the narrator is like naming every uh attack that is about to happen uh you right know. and they're uh, they do a lot of explaining like it's very greek chorusy where they're explaining the action mm-hmm. yeah yes i agree with that uh, so yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense for this. Um, so a little bit of trivia about this series. And again, it's fairly new, so I didn't ha- find a whole lot. So one thing, a season two is generally expected. Um, after I watched these first four episodes, I realized we're not going to be wrapping this up in 13 episodes, uh, <laughs> but it's not yet confirmed from what I could find. Uh, and there were, weren't enough critics, uh, reviews for a rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but it did have the audience reviews, which was a 67% positive score. So like generally positive, but not like raving about it, uh, seem, seem to be the, um, the rating that I could find. And when you hear that there's going to be 13 gods fighting 13 humans, I imagine as an audience, you're curious about who those would be. Um, and we get a list of some of them in these first four episodes of who's going to be coming up. I think, Andrew, you went and found the full list right from the I found I found as much as I could um, through basic wiki searches. Mm -hmm. There was some I mean, it's I don't think it's a complete list. I don't I'm not sure if the manga is entirely wrapped up. And so there might be changes. No, the manga is ongoing. Chapter 50 just came out, but the manga has been going since uh, 2017. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, you're going to have a lot of things that like might be slightly different. So this is the list as I could find it. But there was also some confusion because like originally they had listed Buddha as one of the gods, but he ends up fighting for the humans and uh, eventually. <laughs> and, and so it's like, oh, okay, so this, these lists are not, not there locked some in. fluidity as the narrative is progressing, mm-hmm. but, but I found what I could. Okay. So the gods who, uh, it seems we'll be fighting, or at least well, again, with all those caveats that we just gave, are going to be Zeus, Buddha, Loki, Apollo, Poseidon, Susano, Nomikoto, Heracles, Thor, uh, Visrava, Anubis, Odin, Beelzebub, and Shiva. 
And the humans are going to be Kim Chi Wong, King Leonidas, Nikola Tesla, Kojiro Sasaki, Jack the Ripper, Adam, as in Adam and Eve, Adam. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Lubu, uh, Raiden Tamiman, Bishamontan, Grigori Rasputin, Nostradamus, <laughs> Suji Okita, and uh, Simo Haya, and Sakata Kintoki. I don't know the history of every one of those. Yeah. But as soon as like, a lot of the Ripper like, uh, is in the yeah. list, I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> it's a lot of like Japanese and, and Chinese like folk mm-hmm. heroes. And yeah. Stuff. So it's, it's more well-rounded than a Western audience would have created. Yes, definitely. Uh, but yeah, every time I look <laughs> yeah. at this list, I just see Nikola Tesla and I'm just like, what? <laughs> what is he going to do in a fight? Like, is he going to be building Tesla coils on the, in the arena? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, but if what, you yeah, have, one can only have believe. Tesla and and there's no Tesla coils, like, what? Why? What are we even doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe they'll just go full uh, uh, the prestige, and like there'll be multiple Nikola Teslas running around. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna fight the gods with mass. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Well, I'm about to summarize the first four episodes, but before we do, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive uh, access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes, which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we aren't covering yet as episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And we would like to thank patron Charles, who requested that we cover this topic on the podcast. All right. Uh, spoiler summary for episode number one. At a council of the Valhalla, or a council of Valhalla, I think is what they call it, all the gods, meaning all the gods from all the mythologies, decide that they're tired of humans and they vote to end them. But before the final decision is announced, Brunhilde of the Valkyries objects and invokes a special clause, Article 62, Paragraph 15 of the Constitution of Valhalla, which allows for a one-on-one battle between humans and gods. This is one of my favorite details of the entire thing. <laughs> like the, the, I, the Constitution yes. book and, and and the bureaucratic uh, like, well, it's in the Constitution. We, now we're stuck. <laughs> it, it was in the rule book. <laughs> there are constitutional go. monarchy, apparently. <laughs> yes. And uh, this Article 62, Paragraph 15 allows for a one on one battle between humans and gods. 13 humans. 13 gods. First to seven victories wins. The gods mock the idea of battling humans, and Brunhilde calls them scared. So, of course, the gods now accept her plan because a little reverse psychology on egotistical gods will always work. Uh, because the gods can manipulate time, the humans can come from any era. The first battle will be between Thor and Lubu, a Chinese military leader from around the year 199. Uh, now, episode two. Uh, Lubu earns Thor's respect in this fight. Uh, so they're fighting, and Lubu is actually holding his own fairly well. And we see a flashback of Thor casually destroying an army of frost giants with a special attack. Back in the arena, we saw Thor, we see Thor preparing this attack. And if it just destroyed all the frost giants, Lubu, as a human, doesn't stand a chance. The attack uh, hits and causes a shockwave, and so much dust gets kicked up that nobody can see what happened. But we're assuming like Lubu's just going to be pulp. But when the dust settles, Lubu has withstood the attack, and he's actually able to wound Thor uh, in the immediate aftermath of this attack. And now we see a flashback to Lubu's life where he wanders in search of the strongest opponent that he could face. Like his whole purpose in life is just to find a worthy foe. Uh, Back in the arena, Zeus realizes that no human weapon could injure a god the way Lubu's just did. And he looks at Brunhilde and realizes what is happening. Episode three. Uh, and now we get a little like mini flashback to before the battle in the arena has begun. Brunhilde speaks to the other Valkyrie uh, and she asks one of them if she will dedicate herself to defeating the gods. 
In the battle, in the arena, Lubu's weapon glows and the gods realize what has happened. The Valkyries have a power to transform their bodies into sacred weapons that will rival the power of gods' weapons. Thor wears armored gloves that make it possible for him to wield uh, wield the power of Mjolnir. Lubu, using his new weapon, is able to shatter Thor's gloves. So the the Valkyrie, uh, that is now his weapon. Zeus and Hermes realize that this whole battle isn't just the Valkyries attempting to save humanity. It is the Valkyries, Valkyries rebelling against the gods. Zeus is delighted that something interesting is finally happening. <laughs> like He just cackles in delight, <laughs> realizing there's there's a plot against the gods. Uh, despite having lost uh, his gloves that are supposed to be what he requires to be able to wield Mjolnir, Thor grabs the hammer and throws it at Lubu. Lubu dodges the, uh, to the shock of the gods, but as Lubu runs towards Thor uh, to attack him, he realizes the hammer is returning and it's going to hit him from behind episode four lubu blocks the hammer's attack with his weapon from the valkyries but the force is enough that it shatters his human legs so like he's holding up his weapon and catches the, the hammer and stops it in his, his progress but uh doing this shatters his legs it is believed now that the fight must be over but lubu's legendary horse red hair and and norman you kind of mentioned that many of these figures are kind of almost like folkloric heroes uh yeah. in in asian cultures and lubu in chinese culture did have like this famous horse that he like he's a uh, from what i could gather in doing a little quick bit of internet research so with that <laughs> you know understanding that this was just me doing a quick search online lubu was a real figure that has been kind of mythologized in uh chinese lore and part of that is about this horse called red hair that he would ride and red hair now comes into the arena lubu is able to mount it and now is moving around the arena uh despite his legs being broken uh and his training uh back in, in his life on earth lubu developed an attack that was called sky eater or i think it was what yeah. it was sky, yeah. sky mm-hmm. eater Sky Eater. Uh, and uh, he prepares to use this, his mightiest attack against Thor. Thor blocks the attack with so much force that Lubu's arms are now broken and shattered and torn up. And Lubu actually like bites one of his like dangling arms off and spits it to the ground. <laughs> uh, he spurs Red Hair on and smiles as Red Hair charges at Thor, knowing that this is the greatest battle he could ever have hoped to participate in. So at this point, Red Hair has uh, broken legs and no arms and he's riding towards thor and thor no knows that this is the honorable death that lubu uh, has earned he swings mjolnir and beheads him and the gods win the first battle the end of episode four so uh <laughs> my first note and I, I i want to talk to some people who know anime more for me like the premise was intriguing and as soon as they introduced the idea of like the valkyries like rebelling against gods like i love that subplot but it didn't really get revisited but at least now it's like okay there's something more going on here uh because if this really was just the tournament of humans versus gods i think that that could be fun but it's kind of light so now we're getting some some other stuff happening and that that's adding some interest but i found the pacing just a little odd uh or maybe it was uh unfamiliar to me like each move in the battle was a couple minutes of screen time <laughs> well yeah like at times well yeah you get like <laughs> You get a, a variety of weird pacing things, especially from the Western perspective, right? If you're not accustomed to this, you, like you'll get used to a lot of these things in anime. And I wouldn't say that this anime was especially adept at doing them in a in a well-balanced way. Um, but you get things where it's like, okay, I get to see the move start. I get a description of the move. I get a vignette about the history of the move. I get the the secondary context of like the Valkyrie smiling at Zeus. And <laughs> then you get the bulk of the move 
And then you get like the the subversion of it. It's like, oh, this is the greatest move that Thor can possibly do. Oh, he dodged it. But there's but a no, secondary no, first, there's first a secondary there's the part. Pause. Like he's done the move. Now everyone stares in awe for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, at reaction dust. shots. Yes, reaction shots and dust settling. No one can see what has actually happened. Then we see what actually happened that Lubu is still up. And then mm-hmm. more reaction shots, <laughs> shots yes. of shock. <laughs> And then, yeah, yeah, and and then, but like when Thor throws the hammer, right? It's like, okay, he's throwing the hammer. We're building up to it. We're narrating it. It's happening. He dodged it, and you get like three different shots of him dodging it, um, and you get the shocked reactions and everything. And then there's the second half of the move, which shouldn't be necessary, but there is a second half of the move. <laughs> um, for for the move that can't be dodged, there's a backup part to it in case it's dodged, <laughs> and and you get like like the escalation is a big part of this where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this is Thor's ultimate move. And, oh wait, he's going to break kidding. the, he's going to break the gloves, which is why Thor can wield the hammer. No, the gloves are actually holding him back. <laughs> and, yes. and so you get a lot of like, okay, stakes, break the stakes, raise the stakes, break the stakes, raise the mm-hmm. stakes. <laughs> like which I constantly. Think, and I, I actually like enjoyed that as, I, again, like the the feature of the narrative, like it did make it interesting because, you know, you got you start with your premise of like, OK, a god against a human. You expect the human to die. And it's like, OK, now here's why the human can stand up. But here's why the god still has the upper hand. But here's a, one more trick the human can pull out. And, and so I, I thought all that was interesting. It just felt the, the pacing felt, I don't know, disjointed uh, to me as a viewer. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I I did a bunch of research about this because I had heard that this manga was like pretty good and engaging so like i i went like digging around to like see what people were kind of like saying about the anime and the production and i guess the studio that did this hasn't ever really done a full series with this like much detailed character work before Mm. uh and it is assumed that like the budget wasn't very high because this is probably something that Netflix saw as like, oh, people are going to watch this anyway. Like this property is kind of hot. We'll spend a little bit of money. We're not going to take a big risk. We'll hire a smaller studio. And one of the things about like the anime industry is that uh, sadly, a lot of animators are still paid by the frame. They're not salaried. So or or hourly, they're paid by the frame for the work that they do. So when a studio is given a budget, that budget kind of translates directly to a number of frames of animation that they're going to wind up producing. Mm. That that contributes to the static images. Yes. Yes. Because when, when Andrew was describing like the 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 fight sequence, it would be like Thor pulling the hammer back and you see a freeze frame for what felt like a good 10 seconds just there on the screen. A right, Thor yeah. There's a there's a lot it. of static imagery there are a couple there are a few moments of like some fluid animation kind of interspersed probably about like once every 30 to 40 seconds once a minute uh, to kind of keep it flowing like it still looks like it's moving along but there is a lot of static imagery in the action shots Mm -hmm. and it really makes the pacing like kind of kind of drag you know what and that also Norman, you explaining all of that, which is something I didn't know that like paying by the frame really contextualizes for me um, like big crowd reactions where it is completely static, but you have like full cheering and shouting yeah, like audio work and the camera like kind of pans across a static image for a crowd reaction. Right. And, and that's I like the origin of like show- speed lines and stuff, mm-hmm. too, is like saving on frames. 
yeah. And so I, I like now that you talk about it, it's like, oh, I know all the like I can see all these frames saving things in my mind that I don't think about them a ton. But it's definitely there. Like I can really mm-hmm. picture it for like crowd shots where it's like, oh, they just do the crowd once and then they, and they reverse pan across it, it or color and then, change it. Yeah. And then they pan across it and they have the audio going, but they don't have to animate a crowd cheering. Mm hmm. The Dark Tournament does it constantly. In, yeah, in I was York, like, so. I, I think I was picturing Dark Tournament. I was like, yeah, Dark <laughs> Tournament like does that a ton. The same four like crowd shots that they pan over, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like, I, like I shot feel like crowd and cheering crowd, and you could do a fan edit of this and like condense the runtime considerably <laughs> by, yes. by removing a lot of those yeah yeah <laughs> those moments. Uh, one exists one exists on youtube uh when i was trying to like find stuff people talking about this on youtube there's an edit of the fight between thor and lubu just the whole fight edited down to 15 minutes yeah okay yeah so which I, which I, I, is still longer than it should take because there there's like four actual attacks yeah but i i mean i in talking about this pacing I think the, like I said, like the the idea of the fight and the way it gets laid out, and, and like that escalation and the back and forth, like all of that worked. Is just watching it, it, it felt yeah. a little kind of plotting at times. Uh, and, and I could also see this might have been an issue of adaptation, where like on a manga page, you know, uh, looking at a still image of Thor like rearing back with his hammer, you dwell on that as long as you want, and then you move on to the next mm-hmm. panel. Uh, right. And if, but but time is controlled by in in tv you know in 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 this uh anime version very differently uh and so the pace is not in the control of the reader it's in the control of the the producers and and thanks to some of this behind the the scenes production side of stuff that norman shared like a a lot of those choices make more sense now and i think some of that also comes from like the adaptation process where Mm -hmm. they're taking you know they've got the source material manga which has chapter and volume sizes that are a certain size. There's a certain length and a certain structure and everything. And then you have to choose like, okay, what are you going to adapt? Is it chapter to episode or is it, you know, two chapters per episode and what kind of structure are you going to give? And you have to, you kind of have to make a decision about that because it has a big impact on how you structure the overall story throughout the, the series. Um, And like manga chapters in a lot of cases are shorter than an American comic book. Yeah, about they're 20, like, pages, like 16 to 20 pages usually. Yeah, it's, it's it's on the short side, whereas an American comic book is typically like 22 pages. Um, and so like pacing and structure is, is different. And if they decide to go like chapter to episode, it's like, OK, you're kind of stretching that to like yeah. to to a minute or two minutes per page, you know, 90 seconds per page to get a 22 which is, minute episode, which is crazy. Lot. Like good pacing usually is like about three chapters to an episode mm-hmm. is usually like a good amount of material. That's like a thing I see thrown around a lot when people talk about like adaptation of manga to anime. That yeah, generally or, or, seems to be what like the My Hero anime has followed, what mm-hmm. the One Piece anime follows when like it's considered like kind of when it's considered to be like in a better place. It's usually like that <laughs> three to one ratio. Because so, sometimes it, the sometimes One Piece it anime one has one. long, long stretches, stretches where it's doing it's doing one to one. It's like uh, ah, yeah. we need to slow down our pace a little bit, and so they'll go well, one to one. Well, there's 990 episodes of the anime and 1,020 chapters. So, like, there's a lot of filler Ooh. somewhere. <laughs> um, and now, then, Norman, but, just just a uh, question. How, in terms of, like, adaptation, when we're talking manga to anime, is there an expectation for fidelity? Like, how closely it is going to match versus how loose the adaptation can be? Uh, which I know is, you know, for, for Western audiences, 
there's always a debate, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's it's really dependent on like the the property and like how like popular it is or like how much mainstream appeal does it seem to have? Like if it's really, really niche, a lot of times like you're really just appealing to that one fan base. So there's like more of an expectation that it's going to be like a really faithful adaptation. But if it's something that has a lot more mainstream appeal, like stuff like My Hero Academia or Dragon Ball or One Piece, like there isn't, I don't think quite as much of that expectation because the expectation is to like produce the anime kind of as a commercial for the manga and the magazine when it comes to Shonen Jump properties. Um, mm. So I don't think there's quite as much of an expectation when it comes to like the bigger, more mass appeal properties, because in a lot of ways, the anime is kind of an advertisement for the magazine. Interesting. Um, and, and it seems like um, for a lot of Western adaptations where it's like a book to a film uh, or even to a TV series, like I, I think there's enough audience uh, at least like learned expectations about we've, we're going to fit a length of like two, maybe two and a half hours for a film uh, or like right. it's going to do this. And so we know certain subplots are going to have to be cut. Things are going to be condensed. Maybe some characters are going to be amalgamated into one uh, instead, instead of less separate. But with anime where you're saying like some anime can go for hundreds and hundreds of episodes, mm-hmm. there might be less of that expectation. Yeah, there's definitely like, especially with long running shonen, there's like less of an, ad- an expectation that they're gonna like take their time and and do things in ways that aren't like cutting subplots or extending subplots or like adding extra things in. Like My Hero Academia is kind of weird in this way because it is like a long running shonen manga, but it's not a it's not a weekly anime series the way that Naruto and Bleach and Dragon Ball and One Piece and yeah, my- uh, the Naruto sequel Boruto. Those are all like weekly grind anime. And and my hero is is like seasonal. It's like we're doing our chunk and then we take a break. Is this weird? That's really weird for shonen anime. The others do not take a break. I'm wondering for my hero, is there an American like side to it? Like, because I know that one gets promoted more through Hulu, right? And so like, is there an American production uh, like interest that's kind of dictating that it is seasonal rather than the, the weekly? I don't mm. yeah I I'm not really sure not that I'm aware of like I know that the the author of the manga uh has said uh, a whole lot that his primary influences are all western stories Star Wars yeah. and American comic books so maybe it's just his influence on like how he wants his story adapted like, kinda, I don't really know do it western style yeah. interesting I don't really like all the place names in my hero academia are Star Wars references yeah <laughs> is that the one we we did an episode yeah. on my hero academia and yeah. is that the one that had we a character that had like the uh the gambit head sock am i remembering that right um i mean i'm sure somebody we did, did. a Rurouni kenshin had the gambit head sock he also had a lot of western influences um right but uh but yeah like like my hero he did his training on dagobah beach um <laughs> yep and things like uh, that they're tattooing well, station, have a beach. Like the train station. I mean, dagobah isn't really a beach <laughs> it's not the, the beachy yeah. name <laughs> Uh, right they're both wet i guess uh yes <laughs> um oh okay so i'm loving all this this is making the, me more and more interested in the anime and what, and, and, and like the differences in expectations and how much that's going to um affect audience reception right and i think one reason why i felt it a little more in this one is like my expectations for consumption were are so different than what you know a traditional anime consumer would have been mm-hmm. and there's yeah. a there's a lot of anime that's going to take you know like basically the manga is um is storyboard whereas mm-hmm. like like superhero adaptations in the u.s 
don't typically do that unless you're Zack Snyder um, or really like the 1960s Marvel animation. Like mm-hmm. if you've ever seen any, a few of those, those really are taking oh, the comics. Spider-Man very amazing Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that one, I, I mean, there's, there's that, the, the wave of like the Marvel superheroes in, in like early sixties, that is almost like very rough animation of the actual Jack Kirby panels um, you know, from incredible Hulk and yeah. stuff. And it really is just, uh, like film, l- less than filmation level uh, animation of those storyboards coming straight from from the comic books, uh, and, and so they, like there occasionally you see that, but it's like Andrew's saying, like typically now the expectation would be uh, the the source material is very much just a a, a jumping off point for ideas <laughs> more mm-hmm. than yeah. uh, something that's going to be adapted point for point but, on but on us into a different medium. Manga and anime is like yeah, we're telling the story. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's going to be pretty pretty adherent most of the time and so i would expect like most of the big sequences and shots that you see in this if you were to go to the anime you'd be like oh yeah yeah i remember this yeah okay like because it's considered like i think there's a little considered a little more like societally disrespectful to change too much from like a source material just like in general like in the the culture around uh like stories and authorship and art in japan than it is like in the u.s and how we kind of see like adaptation is just like we take this as an inspiration and then do whatever we want with it well and at this point like it's like if you're adapting spider-man like it's a corporately owned character that's had hundreds of different creators uh right. at this point. you know maybe over a thousand different people have like really had a creative voice in creating right. this idea of who spider-man is so what's gonna be adapted is more of like this this cultural right. inheritance uh, of it whereas when you're going from a manga often it's it's one creator who's yeah. done the entire story <laughs> that's like yeah. the biggest difference really between like western comic books and, and manga it's, it is, is a like huge difference one person's work versus like a team of people writing a story passing it off to an another team of people to write another story to another team of people to another team of people like that just doesn't happen with manga hmm. so with this particular anime um when it came to uh some things like the, the violence and the character designs like it just felt so uh hyperbolic at times you know like over the top uh <laughs> and so my question was like is this satirizing or parodying something uh or is this just embracing a lot of the tropes do you do you have a sense <laughs> of where it's riding on that line because i could see it either way at times um with something like aphrodite's character design which is just like oh yeah so, uh, so ridiculous the- i'm like this has to be parody that's mocking that one's gotta be right yeah, that one has to be <laughs> i uh, there's no way that that aphrodite's not like straight up satire of of that trope uh the i don't know so i think that in the manga it probably works better because I think it is at least lightly kind of self-aware or like satirical of these tropes. It like takes them really, really far, especially with the like, oh, you thought this was one thing, but it's a different thing. Like the way that the power Mm -hmm. escalates across the fight. Like, I think it is like lightly self-aware and satirical, but I think the nature of the adaptation of the anime like kind of harms that about it where it doesn't come across that way. It just comes across as kind of like kind of flat and like not terribly interesting in a lot of places because of the pacing. I think that's I think like the a really biggest thing idea. that hurts it. Could, could we dig into it a little more? Like, what do you think is the difference between the manga and the anime that would allow uh, that kind of maybe self critique of the, the, the very genre that it's, it's um, you know, living in uh, to, to come across better in the manga versus the anime. I think it could come across in anime. 
I think it doesn't yeah. come across well in this anime largely because of the pacing and like the static images. Like I think, I think... that this is very like straightforward and adaptable. And I think mm-hmm. that you could like capture that tone of like the self-awareness and that satire. I think that it probably works better in the manga compared to this adaptation because you you get to decide how much time you spend with all of these hyperbol- hyperbolic like over the top things whereas the the anime kind of forces you to sit with them because of the pacing and i think it kills some of like what they're trying to do i think um on top of that like the anime has to make a choice about things like the sound effects and the music and like the tone of the volume and the crowd and all that sort of stuff and you kind of have more flexibility with the manga to read it a certain way and so you can read it maybe a little more satirical um and a little less serious but the anime kind of plays it like pretty serious like they are playing like epic drum beats the whole time it's like okay you you have to like cut in with some more comedic relief or some some you know, tension or, releasing. Or maybe a few more barbs from the announcer that is almost like a wink to the audience would make yeah. it more clearly satirical. Yeah. And yeah. it's harder to produce that wink when you're going straight from the manga, right? Like the, the things that create that wink in a manga are not the same things that create the wink when you have sound yeah. and you have motion and you have color. Yeah. Like, cause you, you put that in your, in your own head. Like when you read a manga, like you kind of, you fill in like what you think the sound is and how you think the crowd reacts and like everyone's tone of voice. But yeah, the, the anime has to make choices. And actually like one of the things that I think this anime does have really going for it. Uh, I don't know if you watched the English or the Japanese. Um, I did watch the English. I watched English. I think the, I think the, a lot of the English language performances, like the, the actors for the dub are really good. There's some really strong, Mm -hmm. like acting work in this and i think the score is overall like really good too i just i think the animation is kind of where this adaptation loses itself i think that it's, it's, a, it's, it's like it's a holding little serious the rest of it back. yeah i like i think it's it's kind of holding the rest of the package back and like i don't want to like just have like bad things to say because there are things that i enjoyed while i watched this like but yeah definitely especially like the voice actors really felt like they were like trying to do what they could with what they had and like doing a good job. I like the score. The premise is like pretty engaging just as a baseline. Like I am curious to check out the manga now after having watched the first five episodes of this. I, Mm -hmm. I also, I liked the, the like vignettes, the mythology and history vignettes where Mm -hmm. they're telling like, here's background stories. Like this is part of the mythology and I'll, I'll say mythology for both of these characters, right? Like they do Thor stuff and they do stuff for Lubu. We're like, okay, here's their background and here's who you're supposed to think this character is. I was like, okay, that actually like, I think it's good to, to do those vignettes. It it slows everything down a little bit more, but I think it creates like enough depth that it's worthwhile oh yeah when i was talking about the pacing i didn't mind those at all i thought those were fantastic uh, yeah. in terms of making me care um about these characters just just you know a little bit more like I, i'm not i wasn't ever really invested in lubu but it was just kind of intriguing to, to hear or, or to see through the anime some of the backstory of who this character was and why they would have been a human that's chosen and then i was interested enough that i really did go look up lubu <laughs> you know and go say okay yeah. who is it? <laughs> and, and i think and, that's that's an interesting power that like media like this has like regardless of like the quality of the adaptation or whatever mm-hmm. I, I i can't remember what hbo series it was but um recently i, I heard a podcast talking about an hbo series where they just very unapologetically didn't explain the historical context like it just this is what was going on in the world right then and they said like you could you could see google trend searches of people (laughs) going and looking up 
some of this stuff. And the producer was like, we knew people would do that. That's why we like, we're in a day and age where we don't have to handhold the audience. <laughs> and like, particularly yeah. when it's on TV and not in a, in a, in a, th- in a theater, we know you're going to pause it and go look something up. And like, you're going to say to your spouse, go, go, go Wikipedia that. <laughs> right. That's what I love um, about historical fiction is that mm-hmm. if you do just enough work that like, I know a name or a year or an event and like what you are telling me, like what you're showing me is interesting. I'm going to dig into that thing because I'm curious how it went in reality. And like, mm-hmm. it's going to make me engage more with what you're with, the, with the story you're giving me. Like, that's one of the things I love so much about Rurouni Kenshin is like, it caused me to go read a whole bunch about like the Meiji revolution and like the Meiji era in Japan. And that one and gets me the deep into, was. that one gets me deep into history. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and with this one, like, and it makes it better because I did that for, for even two minutes because I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, that's his horse. It's really his horse. Like that's his historical yeah. horse. <laughs> fun, then, fun fact uh, about Lou Boo. Like this is just like a, another piece of trivia uh, in the, in the mid nineties. Uh, I play magic, the gathering in the mid nineties uh, wizards of the coast produced a set just for the uh, Oceania region of the world. That was a romance of the three kingdoms, magic, the gathering set. And there is a Lou Boo card and there's like cards for uh, Lubu and Cow uh, Cow and um, uh, I don't remember if there's a if there's a Guan Yu card, but there's like cards for like all these characters from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, all these people. Oh, yeah. I, I Well, when I was looking up uh, Lubu, I saw like a Lubu popular culture and I saw like in the last 20 years, there's been I want, I want to say it was like five different. Uh, Chinese actors have played him in live action films in China. Uh, and so like, he's a highly drawn upon character for uh, Chinese adaptations and, uh, you know, with, within their their folklore and their their storytelling. Like the, Lubu is a very known, known figure. And so for this Japanese anime to like to draw that kind of a, a figure that is both, um, you know, a historical character, but also a mythologized character made perfect sense. <laughs> Once I was starting to, yeah. to look into him a bit more. Um. Since we're in in the midst of like talking about characters, can we talk about Heimdall as the <laughs> announcer <laughs> and and like the way they use well, the announcer as I wanted to as, ask like yeah. his narrator and he's proxy for audience, right? Like his reaction shot is supposed to inform our reaction, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like what what is actually shocking here? Like we're we're dealing with the arena of gods and everything, so like what is actually surprising? And he kind of like cues you in uh, to to what's normal and what's not, uh, you right. know, at this um it's a great like character way design. that it yeah i i do like the way that this show kind of like plays with expectation because like it knows that the thing that you're waiting for is how the humans are going to actually be able to compete with the gods so i think mm-hmm. that like the way that everyone reacts and they build to that first clash with thor and lubu i think that works really well uh like the way that they they put their weapons down, they approach each other like they're not even really like seeing they're not even really like testing each other because they both believe that they're just like the strongest thing they've ever known. Like, <laughs> and I think that works like up until their first clash. And I, I like the way that this it treats it. And there's there's a handful of moments that I think really work to the benefit of like what this is doing. Like uh, Lubu's last charge on Red Mare, I think, is the most moving piece uh, of like this story of these first four episodes. It really mm-hmm. works. And it only works off the back of like the other little things they were able to do along the way, like in spite of like some of the pacing issues, there are little things to like make you care about this idea that there's they there's this blooming of respect or rivalry between mm-hmm. these two characters. That is a thing 
that it managed to get me to believe across these four episodes. It did its job. And with mm-hmm. that, that like that backstory of like Lubu just searching for a worthy opponent and like almost being yeah. tired of being the greatest human and like him smiling, knowing he's lost, but that this is the greatest battle <laughs> that he's right. ever, mm-hmm. you know, could, could ever fight. And, and so he's smiling as he's riding his his legendary horse and he's his legs are shattered and his arms have fallen off from the and, the, the like the power of of battling a god uh like his human body literally right. can't handle it even with the weapon you know the valkyrie weapon uh but the smile on his face and thor like giving him the nod of respect <laughs> like like you yeah. said it it does all really come together uh in, in a way that's satisfying at that at that point and i and I think that it's interesting in how they build all of that up because it does rely on on like the narration from the announcer. But also, I think I would say there's four narrators uh, like in each of these four episodes, not not a different one for each episode. But there's like a non-specific male narrator that's just like doing the the narration is like this is the gathering of the gods and and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the announcer and then there's Zeus and there's also Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, all, Brunhilde, right? Yeah, the, yeah, all narrating elements of this, and like it's kind of interesting that they balanced that well. Yeah, I was gonna. I mean, you, you were kind of watching this in here because we you were talking about. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the announcer, uh, Heimdall. Hi, Heimdall. Uh, as the announcer, I was gonna say, like, did you have favorite characters? Because we don't. I mean, we get those flashbacks for Thor and Lubu, but like the other characters, we're more just getting like snippets of like Zeus and Brunhilde. But like, I was instantly, instantly like Brunhilde is a really interesting character, <laughs> like yeah. great, great character design, great voice work. And like this sense of, um, I, I don't know how they were able to deliver it so well, but like, there's a sense that, uh, she knows more than everyone around her. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like she's, she's definitely. got a level of control yeah. or, like she, or she's planning the and plotting. She's mm-hmm. the mystery of the, of the series. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the Japanese title um, is it, it, Valkyrie is in the name. Like the the story is, I guess, ostensibly really about her. Uh, so, like, I'm curious. I am curious, like, where that goes because, yeah, it seems like she knows way more than everybody else. Like, and she well, knows and they, stuff that she doesn't tell uh, Gaul, who's another Valkyrie, the youngest one. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't explain why she's doing this. Like, it becomes really clear. It's like, okay, she's the puppet master. She's doing this to get at the gods for some reason it's not to preserve the humans it's to get at the gods yeah that's how it feels like it's not about protecting humanity but she Mm -hmm. needs humanity to win yeah and it's like i don't know why i don't know why she's got a vendetta right and and also like you see i mean from the little that we're we see right now um it's not just that she has this vendetta against the gods like she uh, I don't know how much we're going to find out about this power of the Valkyries to become weapons, but it seems like she's kind of saying we're going to sacrifice some of ourselves in order to achieve this. Like it's not a, a plan without cost <laughs> um, right. that, that she's she's putting into play here. Yeah, it, like and that's interesting, too. There's a little bit more of that in the fifth episode. Um, OK. But yeah, that's interesting, too. Like the idea that she's she's putting the lives of her and her sisters on the line to do this, but it doesn't seem like the idea behind this is noble because she doesn't or, or altruistic because she doesn't seem altruistic like no. at all. Really? There's no, something... like Andrew said, the, the motivation doesn't feel like I need to save humanity because I love humanity or anything like that, or it would be yeah. evil to destroy humanity. Right. There, there's something else at play and it's that, that is a mystery that I find interesting. She does have a great character design. Uh, it's it's really like memorable. Like, I think it's I think it's the best character design of everyone 
in in these first four episodes. I uh, I agree, and they do some different um like design styles. Like her style is very different from Gaul's style. Yeah, I like Lubu's character design too quite a lot. Um, I I would I think that his is the one I like the second most. What is it that you that that pulled you in about him? Like. I don't know, like the I like the way he kind of like rolls. He he like rolls in on the horse. He's all wrapped <laughs> up, and then like he breaks himself free. He's just this big hulking, like shirtless, muscly guy with all these cool tattoos. Like the way his hair is kind of done and the two mm-hmm. like extra tendrils, I think very much feels like a reference to like an imperial dragon. I think is very mm-hmm. much the point of that. Um, so I I just I think that he has a very striking silhouette that's like pretty memorable. And that's really important in like uh, character design, especially like in anime and manga. Especially like, it's really these, easy. Uh, so many stills are going to be happening, <laughs> right? Mean? And like it's it's really easy to like have really generic silhouettes on like mm-hmm. a drawn character. Um, that you need to do something that like you can see the character totally blacked out in silhouette, and you still know not just who they are, but like get a sense of like something about something about who they are like as a character, not just as a person, like something about them. I do want to throw out a shout out to uh, one of the reaction shots during the battle was red hair screaming the the horse like yes. it suddenly cut to a close up of the horse like yes. with the, the action lines behind it and it dwelt on it for like we said you know a little longer than I expected and I just thought I don't mind this one right yeah <laughs> I don't mind the one <laughs> and, and you get to like the end of the battle and the horse is crying right see but like the insert shot of like the horse reacting is like one of those things it's just like yeah this is there's definitely an element of like satire or self awareness to this. Mm-hmm. Like you don't you don't do that in something that's like totally serious that plays it a hundred percent straight. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with that. Uh and and same with the affordative design. But there's like there's just well, enough and- hints that it feels like they're they're providing some commentary about the absurdity of this whole I think, genre. I think Thor's hammer. Um oh, yes. is, is a strong one for that too. Speaking of just the giant <laughs> the giant weapon in the hands of someone in an anime. Yeah, like Thor's yeah. hammer is very much like it's lightly it's, poking fun at that, at the absurdity of it. It's so big that his handle is just a cutout from the handle <laughs> of the hammer. He doesn't even handle the entire handle. Yeah, it has, it's just like a little handle cut into it. It's so funny. Uh, I remember like when I first when I turned on the first episode and like at the end they show Thor. I was like, what? <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> And I, I, I don't mind a little bit of ridiculousness in stories. Uh, no, I like I, I certainly I expect it out of shonen anime. But for that's sure. one of the like things 100%. that pushes me towards satire on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, any other characters that stood out? I mean, we've talked about most of the characters. I do. I think I think Shiva kind of stood out to me. Um, being being like, blue curious, and the like, multiple arms is... and everything. Yeah, like I'm I'm a little curious about like Shiva's whole vibe because he's like the this bored detached like mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I'm I'm a little curious about like what what he's he might be like in a fight and like what who he's going to fight. Uh I'm a little curious about that. Zeus is like kind of the the pervy sage trope, which is like a thing But in that's anime. also like but lecherous Zeus is also in line with mythology. Yeah, right. that doesn't feel so, like, like a, that makes a variation. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like okay, that's perfect casting. <laughs> yeah, but like that's very much a trope in anime too. Like, but yeah, it's, it, yeah, it is. That's because it's supposed to be like a subversion of expectations of like the the ascetic celibate sage. No, he's actually a lecher. He's just out here in the woods by himself. 
Like that's that's like the point of that. That's where that comes from. Is just it's intended to just be a subversion. And I did uh, as far as like character moments, like his reaction when he realizes, oh, there's something else going on here, and he just laughs and cackles in delight. Like oh, he gets a little hard eyes. Yeah, it, it caught me off guard, and I kind of liked it. <laughs> like you said, as far as like subverting expectations, you need that to happen every now and then. Where like yeah, the, the, I think the tournament setup can become so straightforward. Where it's like, okay, I I think I know the outline. <laughs> of exactly what's going to happen in most episodes uh, at this point. Uh, introducing those subplots and having some of those character reactions that surprise you, I think is really necessary. Otherwise, it does become a little too straightforward. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I I also just remembered that I do, I like, they're not my favorites. I don't like them, but I do enjoy them. Uh, uh, Odin's incredulous ravens. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. That, that is always what their reaction is like. That's un- That's ridiculous. <laughs> And I think that does also lean towards maybe a little bit of that satire. Uh, you know, it's, it's just having a little fun here. <laughs> yeah, they, they they want you to know. Mm-hmm. Well, I've really enjoyed this discussion, both in terms of the larger anime world that you've helped me to, to get a handle on and some of the specifics that we've pulled out of this uh, particular anime that we're discussing. Is there any are there any final thoughts that you want to make sure we touch on? There is one thing that I, I, I just kind of like realized when I watched because I rewatched the first four episodes before uh, today as well. That that Thor flashback, I think, is supposed to be a parody of Attack on Titan. I I think you might be right. That's actually a really like I thought of Attack on Titan, but I didn't think of it as a parody of Attack on Titan. Or like a reference, I, but it is, I think it is slightly oh, parody like. I am too ignorant on this subject matter to offer an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> So, you you should try watching the first several episodes of Attack on Titan sometime, Joseph. Is it on uh, Hulu or Netflix? Where where would I find that one? Uh, it's on Netflix. I think Isn't you can it? find it on Hulu as well. Hmm. I originally watched it on Netflix. I know that. Well, maybe we'll have to. I mean, I I think you already mentioned another one that we need to cover. But every time we cover an anime, Norman, you'll be you'll you'll be with us. <laughs> so <laughs> if we get to these ones. <laughs> uh you'll you'll know uh and i i have to say um when i started this podcast i'd seen zero anime at this point i want to say we've covered like five or six uh anime or and a few manga yeah anime and manga you're probably at least a half a dozen yeah my appreciation is growing every time and i'm getting also like more comfortable i think some of it really is that there's just different cultural norms or narrative norms for how the story is being told that sometimes they're just off-putting enough that i can't fully embrace it i'm getting so used to them that i'm not catching on them quite as much uh you know as as i did initially yeah definitely like because i've been reading manga for like 15 years or so now almost Mm -hmm. so like i'm just so used to a lot of the narrative tropes now that i don't find them as grating as like some people like say that they are um for for them like especially when it comes to like joke characters and stuff from the 90s like a lot of people especially like newer people like getting into anime like find a lot of like the 90s humor in like side characters in anime to be really grating and it i'm sure that it is i'm i'm just deadened to it <laughs> i think i think there's a point when when it's no longer weird for you to read in the opposite direction when you're reading manga and it's like okay like yep. I, I just switch back and forth easily. I think that's when you're getting to a point where it's like, okay, and I'm comfortable with the tropes as well. When when you're comfortable <laughs> with the format, you'll be comfortable with the the tropes. <laughs> to the point where I'll binge read like 100 chapters of a manga in a week and then pick up a book and open it from the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in that cycle where it's like, oh, I've been reading primarily manga for a while. And it's like, oh, yeah, other way. 
Oh, I just reread like 60 chapters of One Piece today. Well, I'm going to go pick something up off my shelf and open it from the back. All right. Cool. <laughs> Why'd I do that? Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, Norman, for joining us. Thank you, Andrew, for jumping on as well for this discussion. And thank you, Charles, for supporting the show and also suggesting this topic. And thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode and listening. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us uh, by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Now, Norm, you wrapped up a rather intense project a little while ago. But do you want to plug it one more time here? Yeah, so I was one of the co-hosts of Lord of the Rings Minute, where we covered the Lord of the Rings uh, Extended Edition Trilogy one minute at a time. There's uh, something to the tune of 680 episodes of that over on DuelingGenre.com. But if you're interested in uh, my and my co-host Cass's thoughts on the Hobbit Trilogy, we have been putting up episodes uh, detailing that movie one hour at a time on the Dueling Genre Patreon. That is so much material. <laughs> I just have to tip my cap to you. <laughs> yes. It's overwhelming <laughs> to think about that you do that. And, uh, you know, there's there's more Lord of the Rings content coming in the future. So I imagine you'll have something to say. Maybe not in quite as granular a discussion format. No, uh, probably not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe sometime next year we'll, we'll uh, be able to hear you talking about Lord of the Rings a little more uh, frequently. But, uh, again, there there is that... Uh, uh, your hobby discussion if, if people are looking uh, for more if you've consumed those 600 episodes um, of the, the movies by minute format of their discussion uh, well thank you again for coming on Norman uh, thank you again listeners we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long there's going to be 13 battles. I'm like, well, <laughs> I think it's going to be tied 6-6 heading into the final. <laughs>